Father in heaven, we thank you that you hear our prayers. That your grace is more than sufficient to meet our needs. And God, you give grace upon grace. When we can't see or feel or understand, we can know that you are there. But this morning, God, we ask that you empower, that you give hope, that you give strength, that you give comfort to my brothers and sisters who have said, God, I need you today. They've stood and said, God, I am not too proud to say, I need you to touch me today. I need you to speak to my soul today. I, I need for you, God, to wrap your arms around me and to walk me through this valley. God, I need you to intervene into my life. And I'm asking that for your glory. And Lord, I pray that as you do that, God, they would recognize that your power is mighty and that praise and glory can only be given to you as you sustain them, as you strengthen them, as you hold them as you guide them, as you direct them. And Lord, I pray for the moments where they feel they can't go another step, where they feel like uh, they are dry, where they feel like they are without hope, God, that you would renew their strength, that you would remind them in the stillness of your voice, in the power of your word as they seek you, and in the spirit of prayer. Lord, I pray that as the body of Christ has a hand upon them now, Lord, that they would feel the strength and the power of your presence through your righteous right hand. So, Lord, we give them to you. We give their situation. And we say, great and mighty is the Lord our God who sees our plight, who heals our disease, and God who sees our affliction. And, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen them and work through them and in them this day so that you might be glorified. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25, and we're continuing the story of David. And remembering where David has been. He's been anointed and recognized as the next king by the prophet Samuel, by the former judge Samuel. But the current king, Saul is rejecting David. He doesn't want to have any part of this, and he sees it as his mission in life to basically destroy David. Somehow thinking that if I can just get rid of David, that will erase the promise of God. That will erase the anointing of God. But in fact, uh, that's faulty thinking at best. David has opportunities to kill Saul but he does not take advantage of them because he believes that God has placed him there. God will remove him. And there's, there's a good message right there for the trust and faithfulness of God and to depend upon God. And so David has time after time let Saul even see, look, I could have taken your life, but I'm not doing it. I am trusting the Lord God. And, and through these experiences, David still continues to have to run and to hide. And he finds himself now in the area of Judah, which is his homeland. And in Judah, he is hiding in the wilderness. In an area that he hopes will find some benefit, some friendly faces. Basically, it's his extended family. It's his tribe. And he finds himself looking over 
different ranchers, so to speak, who have sheep and goats. And in a moment, we'll look at one particular rancher that he's helping and assisting, one wealthy man named Nabal, who he hopes as he gives assistance and protection to his shepherds that hopefully one day this relationship will pay off in the future. After all, he is a distant relative, a distant cousin probably. And so that man Nabal, though, the Bible describes actually as a fool. Now, what does fool mean in the biblical sense? We know what it means today. I, I remember times where I've been foolish. As a matter of fact, I came up with a list. And as a matter of fact, I just had to kind of stop myself and just said, that's plenty. I'm not going to share that many anyway. And so I just stuck. Just as an act of grace, I, I, I cut it off at, at a point. You know, I, re- I remember one particular instance when I moved over here to Fort Worth to actually go to seminary over at Southwestern. And I was living in an apartment complex about three or four blocks south of the seminary. And there was a storm that came about much like the one we experienced yesterday. And the rain just came down hard. Now, when I left my apartment going to the seminary, which was only about three or four blocks away, uh, you know, it was kind of ominous, but there was there was no rain. And I went through class. And it just stormed. This came down hard for about an hour. And when I was coming back, I was coming back in my little 86 Toyota Tercel. has two doors and, um, and a hatchback and a, gear, and a stick shift. And could go almost 50 miles an hour up a hill at that point. And, um, and I'm coming back. And I noticed this area where it kind of dips down on the road right before I get to my apartment. Where there had been no water when I left. There's substantial amount of water. I I can't tell how much, but I assumed in my mind it can't be that much. Okay, I just left here and I noticed there's a car parked on the side of the road. This lady said she's not going to go through and she's in a bigger car. And I think to myself, look, I was just here. How bad can it be? So I just, you know, slowly pull on in the water. I start going. I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm going forward. And then I realize I'm moving, but I'm not moving forward. I'm moving sideways. So I turn my wheel real hard, and I'm still going this way. And I just realized, you know, I don't know what to do. There's water coming all in the car. And soon I'm thinking, I see a house, and literally that house is about over there where that wall is. And I'm thinking, surely I won't hit that house. And I keep going, and I land right in their front door. I mean, right in their front yard, about probably... Ten yards from their front door, I, I, my car finally surfaces with full of water. And so I managed to, I can't open the door, I roll down the window and get myself out. And I realized, you know, this was not a good decision on my part. That lady doesn't look like near as big a weenie now that didn't come through here. And sometimes we just make foolish decisions because we react out of ego and not respond out of wisdom. And that's, in fact, what you'll see in this story. This is the story of one wise woman. Matter of fact, I'm calling it the cool and the fool. You know, I'm really good at this title business. Uh, the cool and fool. OK, are you cool today or are you being a fool? And when I say cool, are you making wise, responsive decisions? Are you making foolish, reactive decisions? And in this fact, there's not just one fool. There's really two. Certainly Nabal. But then there's David. David, who has been resisting the urge to kill Saul, the man who's after him, all of a sudden, at this point, decides, you know what, because of the way circumstances are working out and because of the way this guy's going to respond, I'm going to kill him and everybody around him, all the men around him. He's going to be reactive 
He's going to come to that place where I've been hiding and running, trying to do what's right. And now this is the things I get up. I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm not going to put up with it. And he's going to appear at least to be headed down the road of tremendous foolishness. And I say that because if he, in fact, will go down the road that he's presuming to go down, he probably will not be recognized as king of Judah, which will be the first tribe that recognizes him as king. If he wipes out an entire clan of Judah, that's probably not going to happen. We'll see that in the story here in just a moment. Now, how does the Bible define one who is a fool? Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 14, verse 1. Psalms 14, 1. And this is a biblical definition of fool. Now, it can be expanded, certainly, and have more to it. But we understand what to be foolish today means. But in the purest biblical form, this is what the Bible tells us in Psalms 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. And there is no one who does good. All right. That's a biblical definition of fool. And if you look in the ancient Hebrew text, of how they define fool, it's this. It's one who is morally devoid of goodness or one who is morally deficient and does not fear God. One who is morally deficient and does not fear God. And that's, in fact, who Nabal is. Matter of fact, uh, the Bible indicates to us, if we go back and look at the Hebrew, that the same letters are used for the word fool. So it's kind of a, a playoff on fool. And it appears that Nabal... You know, I used to look at that name and think, first of all, somebody ought to just slap your mama for naming you fool when you were born. I mean, who does that to their kid? I mean, that's what I honestly I think when I look at those texts. You know, why would you name your kid fool? Or you just want him to be picked on all his life and be abused? And uh, But really, it's, it's there's kind of a play on word. And it looks like Nabal has kind of embraced this to where it's become a, a nickname in which uh, he kind of, enjoys that image of being a hard, obnoxious, unteachable man. And in fact, he will live up to that name. One who is not, who is morally deficient and one who literally has no fear of God himself. And here's David waiting to become king. And then here's Abigail, the one who's cool, not as an author Fonzarelli, but the one who, in giving in difficult situations, will go back to principle and exercise discretion and discernment. A woman, a godly woman. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 31, a wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm all the days of her life. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. Let's look at our text today. In Matthew, excuse me, in first Samuel, chapter twenty five. And now Samuel died, Samuel, who has been the great prophet, the former judge before Saul has become king and the priest. He's the one in which God has spoken to the people. He is the one who is a picture of righteousness, a picture of the voice of God. Now, Samuel has died and all of Israel assembled and mourned for him and they bury him in his home in Ramah. And then David moved 
down into the desert of Maon. Now, Samuel's died, and so he's moving into this area, this wilderness area, as he is seeking to escape from Saul. And a certain man in, in Maon who had property there at, at Carmel was very wealthy. And Carmel, this area is in Judah, uh, in the, the Hebron area. And matter of fact, this is the same particular area where uh, victory was given to Saul. And Saul decides to make a monument for himself. So Nabal probably even sees this monument, this statue, if you want to call it that, that recognizes Saul as the warrior. And this man, Nabal, that we're about to read about, the Bible says he's very wealthy. He had a thousand goats, which is a large sum of goats at this point, and 3,000 sheep. Now, sheep are a staple for this economy. Uh, virtually everyone is clothed or uses cotton, uses or uses wool rather. So this is a uh, very uh, profitable business. This is something everyone would need. And he's got 3,000, which is a huge sum, uh, particularly considering that Amalekites and others are, are constantly raiding and trying to take animals. And he's been able to maintain 3,000 of them. And we'll see one of the reasons he's been able to Maintain such a large flock. His name is Nabal. And his wife's name is Abigail. She was intelligent and beautiful. But her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. So get the picture. She's intelligent, attractive. And then the words that are used to describe him are surly and mean. And we talked about the definition of what a fool was earlier. And mean in his dealings. And while David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. Now, this shearing of sheep time, this was a festive time. And the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 14, chapter 14 and 26, that whenever there was this time, this festive occasion of, of sheep shearing, uh, that it was a very profitable time for the owner. And it was a time in which he was also to help provide for those who were in need in his community. So it was a time where those in need could come and they could get some of the leftovers, so to speak. They could uh, maybe participate in the food, but certainly get some of the wool to meet their basic needs. And so it was a very festive time. And we see that throughout the scriptures in different times and different stories. So uh, it is a huge time of profit. It's the big payoff. It's the huge bonus. And so that's what's occurring here. And so David is picking a good time, a time in which he knows Nabal will have plenty to send his servants to say, hey, we need a little help. We need a little food. We're in the desert, as you can imagine what it would be like in the wilderness to try to feed 600 men. And that's the status of David at this point. He's been running from Saul. So he comes to his to his tribe to a time where they have plenty. And he's going to make a request. And not only that, he's been very helpful to Nabal. So when David heard it, that this was sheep shearing time, he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. So David is blessing him. He's giving him a blessing at this point. And then he says, Now I hear it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. 
Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable to my young men since we were since we've come at a festive time. So we've helped you. We've recognized uh, who you are and I want to bless you and I want want to just recognize you as as a leader and I want God's blessing upon you. I know this is a good time for you. You know, we've tried to try to be helpful in the past. We're relatives, so to speak, long lost relatives. I say long lost, probably distant relatives. You're of the tribe. And this is a festive time. This is something that would be standard and expected, even if we hadn't been helpful. Please give your servants and your son. It's a term of endearment, a term of recognition of your authority. Again, he's asking in, in certainly the right spirit, saying the right words. And David, whatever you can find. Whatever you can afford, whatever you can give would be appreciated. And when David's men arrived and gave Nabal this message in David's name, they waited. And this is the response that Nabal gives. Nabal answers David's servants and said, who is David? Who's David? And then he says this, he goes, who is this son of Jesse? Let me first of all speak to the fact that he knew who David was. It was from his tribe. He was the one who had killed the Philistine when he was just a teenager. And, or had killed Goliath. He had delivered the people from the nation. He had heard of David, certainly. He potentially had even heard that, you know what, he's kind of the, the anointed one. He's the next one in line. But he certainly knew who David was because he even calls, he says, the son of Jesse. He even knows who his father is. And it's not enough that he's going to insult David. He's going to say, and I don't even, and who's your daddy? I mean, kind of mentality, you know? So it's not enough that Nabal could have taken several different paths. He could have said, um, you know what? I, if I have a little bit, I'll give you something. You know, he, he, the, the great what, uh, opportunity would have been to say, you know, thank you so much for you done. Come on in and let's get what you need. Or he could have said, you know, if I have anything left over, or he could have said, you know, this isn't a good time. Not right now. Thanks, but no thanks. And that's always our opportunity to respond in those matters, isn't it? But what does he do? He insults him. He says, who are you? Who's your daddy? And then he says, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Wow. What he's, what he's implicating at this point is to say, you know, you should be there with Saul. And if Saul wants to kill you, that's his, that's his privilege. You know, I'm a man of great authority and I have people working for me. And if one of my servants was gone, boy, I'd be taking action too. So I don't feel sorry for you. I don't care what you've done. Big deal. He's a man that's had too much wealth and too much power and has been too unteachable for too long that he's not in touch with reality. And we're going to see this as we continue to go through this passage. He's uncharitable. He's unteachable. He's all the things that it talks about biblically to be a fool. And so he said, why should I share my bread or even take my water like like he owns the water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where. And David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. And David said to his men, put on your swords. David is going to react and not respond. He's going to be reactive. His ego has had just about enough. I mean, I've been trying to do what's right. I've been running from this crazy king man, and I've had opportunities to kill him. 
And now I've been trying to help out with somebody in my tribe and um, trying to do good to him. And now he responds to me. I, I've had just about enough. Somebody's going to pay. Somebody's going to get a whooping. I mean, that's what that's basically what he's saying at this point. And, and you're the man. I don't I don't like the way you're talking to me. Don't like your attitude. And so what am I going to do? Strap on your swords. Let's go, boys. That's where that's how Dave David's being foolish. And so they put their swords on and David put on his and about 400 men went up with David while 200 stayed back with the supplies. And one of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, and David sent messengers from the desert to give our masters his greeting. But he hurled insults at him. Yet these men were good to us. They did not mistreat us the whole time we were out in the fields near them. Nothing was missing night and day. They were as a wall around us all the time we were herding our sheep near them. And now think it over and see what you can do. Because disaster is hanging over our master and the whole household. He's a wicked man and no one can talk to him. You know, I hope that's not a phrase that anybody uses for us and certainly hope it's not one that our family would say. You know, you just can't talk to him. You know, I've had relatives like that. that You just can't talk to him. That's, That's a fool. Someone that can't be talked to, who can't be reasoned with, who won't listen. And Abigail lost no time. Now, we've seen the fools. Now, here comes the one who can't handle it correctly. Here's a woman who's cool, who's going to exercise discernment and discretion. <coughs> Excuse me. She took 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins, five dressed sheep, uh, five seals of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on the donkey. And then she told her servants, go ahead of me, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And she came riding her donkey into the mountain ravine. And there were David and his men descending toward her. And she met them. And David had just said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. And he has paid me back evil for good. I mean, his ego is bruised and he's responding in that manner. May God deal with David be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave one male of all who belongs to him. Now, do any of you have a King James Version this morning? Raise your hand if you have a King James Version. Well, good, we've broken you all of that. Um, one, one, one person has. If you, if, you, if you had that version, what it would say, literally, it would say, he who pees against the wall. And I know if you're in seventh grade, you're going to want to run home and look at that now. Uh, but it's a term used... That that means you're going to wipe out all the men. You're literally going to kill all the men. And that's literally what it says right here. He who pees against the wall. It actually doesn't work, use the word pee. But nevertheless, as we continue here, it says here, I'm sorry, we have descended to that level. And she came riding her donkey. And, and you see the story right here. And when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off the donkey and bound down before David. Now. Remember how Nabal responded. He responds with insults. He responds with words that are not uh, beneficial. He responds with words that are degrading to his family name, to David's family name. But notice how Abigail responds. She responds completely differently. And, and ladies, if you, if, if you ever thought you were married to a meathead, you ought to just go back and read this story. I mean, he is the, like, meathead of all men, you know, talk about doesn't listen, makes 
terrible to choices. We're going to find him drunk here in a moment. I mean, he's just he's just a a knothead. I don't know a better way to put it. I don't have a good word to use. He's he's a fool. And and this isn't the sermon for today, but remember this. Remember that uh, there are worse situations than whatever you have and that God can sustain us even sometimes when we're in a difficult situation or a difficult marriage. Again, there's, there's, another, there's another sermon for another day, but I doubt your husband or wife, whatever the case may be, is this bad. Continuing. And when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before him with her face to the ground. She shows him the highest form of reverence. First of all, she gets off her donkey. That's just a sign of respect. Number two, she bows down. And now, thirdly, she's going to bow to his feet. Uh, Just like the woman who had the precious perfume who bowed at the feet of Jesus. We're going to see the utmost respect and humility and honor given to David. So we see the, the antithesis of a response given by Abigail, even though she is the lead lady. And she fell at his feet and said, my Lord, let the blame be on me. Wow. This woman hasn't done anything wrong. She's been living with a monster for all these years, probably an arranged marriage. Again, I want to go back and kick her parents, but who who gave her to this guy who uh, was known as a surly and uncouth, non-God-fearing man, but he was wealthy. And so she's been living this life. And now she has come to that place where she recognizes he's made a huge mistake. And our family and our whole household is probably going to pay for it. So what does she do? She goes and takes responsibility. Here is one who is completely righteous, completely innocent, who has said, let the blame be upon me. Reminds you of the image of Christ who let the sin of the world come upon him. He who was righteous and knew no sin became sin so that we might become righteous. And that's exactly the picture here that we're given. That's exactly what Abigail is doing. In a place where she could have said, go get him. I mean, you want to make my day? Go wipe that knucklehead out. Now, just leave us out of that. I mean, I never wanted to be married to him anyway. That's my mom and dad's fault. I have not enjoyed this time at all. Go get him. I'll stand back here and watch, I tell you. It's not what she says. What does she say? She goes, let the, let the blame be upon me alone. Please let your servant speak to you and hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. Recognize this is who he is. He's foolish and he says things and he does things he shouldn't do. And I've lived with it for a long time. He's just like his name. His name is fool and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. Here's the deal. If I had known what was happening, I would have intervened. I would have stepped in. I'm kind of the, the voice of logic and reason. I would have given your servants what they wanted if they would have found me. I had no idea. You see, at my house, this is kind of the way things work. If you need a good, solid answer, if you need assistance, if you need help, if you want something healthy, then you got to kind of come to me. He's kind of in his own world. He's kind of out there and he, he drinks too much. He doesn't fear God. He, 
That's not where you go. And I, I don't want you to hold my household responsible for the decision that he made that does not represent me or those of my household. Remember what a Proverbs 31 does? She does what is best for her household. And we see that's true here in Abigail. She said this. She said, may the Lord pay no attention to him. He's wicked. I didn't see what was going on here. In verse 26, now since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed. And and obviously she must see something in his countenance. David has softened. She sees that he is receiving what she said. He is relenting. And she takes advantage of that. And she says, now, since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, may your enemies, all who intend harm, be like my master, Nabal, but be like my master, be like Nabal. But let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master. Speaking of David, because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you, she knows that Saul is pursuing him. She knows that he is innocent. She knows what his plight and what his circumstances are. Let let you not make this mistake. And let the life of the Lord, my master, it will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. You are in the hand of God. God has given you a calling. God has given you a promise. And He also has given you protection as you follow Him. Don't make a mistake here. And catch this, what she says. But the lies of your enemies, He will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. She knows the story. She knows how He killed Goliath with a slingshot. She knows the hand of God has been upon Him. And when the Lord has done for my Master every good thing He has promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel. This is your calling. This is the promise of God. Don't mess this up. Don't make an unwise decision. Don't react out of foolish ego. My master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. When the Lord has brought my master success, remember your servant. Matter of fact, David will recognize here in the next few verses what she is accomplishing for him. Because if we stated earlier, if he goes ahead and he kills Nabal and he kills every man associated, everyone in that household, her relatives, everybody that's associated, if he does that, he will wipe out one of the most substantial and well-known clans in Judah. And it is very doubtful, at least humanistically, that Judah will ever recognize him as king. They certainly won't be the first to promote him. He would have killed his own countrymen, his own tribe. And so it's amazing what Abigail is doing for him, how she gets him to be wise and to think through what you're doing. And David recognizes this. He says, David said to Abigail, please be to the Lord, the Lord God, who has sent you to me this day. Praise be to the Lord thy God. May you be blessed for your good judgment, for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, 
if you had not come quickly. And if you'll remember when we talked about uh, a Proverbs 31 woman, she is not idle. She didn't say, you know, let's just see what happens. I don't know, I'm kind of nervous. My hair's not done. Now, she doesn't do any of that. She says, I don't care, care if I don't have a thing to wear. Let's get the stuff ready and let's go. Time is of the essence. Otherwise, surely as the Lord lives, who kept me from harming you, if you had not come to me quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. When Ab Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. And she told him nothing until daybreak. So here's Nabal, who says, basically refuses David, insults him. And it's not that he doesn't have enough. Matter of fact, the Bible indicates that he's doing a huge feast. He's throwing a huge party and he's so drunk that she can't talk to him. And she's probably had experience with this before because she just says, I'm going to bed. And then in the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like stone. Now, some scholars say that is a, a Hebrew idiom for either a heart attack or a stroke. So he's had a stroke or a heart attack, and he is not very responsive at this point. And about ten days later, the Bible tells us that the Lord struck him and Nabal died. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong. David recognizes what he would have done would have been wrong. There would have been a high price to have paid for it. And later on, we'll remember David acts and impulse, and he does pay a high price with Bathsheba and with Uriah. But he is saved at this point from making that kind of decision. And he kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his head. Then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. So what can we learn from this story? How can we Consider what has occurred here and apply that today. Well, let me kind of made up a little test here. I call it the fool test. How to know if I'm acting foolishly? How to know if I'm reacting in foolishness as opposed to responding in wisdom? Probably in your life, either today or in the past, or I can almost promise you in the future, you will come up to a situation in which your emotions are high. Your ego is screaming and you will have the opportunity to either react in emotion or to respond in wisdom and self-control. I have this experience every time I watch the Dallas Cowboys, quite frankly, but nevertheless. How do you respond? The fool test. Number one. When I come to those situations, do I consider my testimony and the purpose for which God has placed me here on this earth? God has placed me here to bring Him glory, to be a light to others that they might come and know the goodness of God and know Christ Jesus. That's why He's left me on here if I'm a child of Christ, if I'm a child of the King. So, number one, 
Do you consider your testimony? Consider the purpose for which God has placed you here. Number two, have I prayed? Have I taken time to pray? We don't see David praying about this. We just hear him uh, hurling out curses about what he's going to do. Do you take time to pray? Number three, have you considered what the Word of God says? Have you considered what the Word of God... David had certainly heard the Torah. He, he certainly was aware of it. But at this moment, I've just had enough. You see, the new job's a hassle and the kid's got the flu. And I'm tired of talking to you. And I'm going to take some action here. You're not responding correctly and you're going to pay. Number four, have I sought godly counsel? If David would have simply asked someone... Away from the situation, if he would have asked one of the priests, they would not have encouraged him. Yeah, go on down there and kill everybody. That's a good idea. He didn't do that. Great. You know, before we ever make any kind of major decision, before we ever respond in anger, you know, one of the wisest things we can do, of course, is to stop and pray, but also say, hey, I'm about to go stay and do this. Ask your spouse. And most of the time, that won't be a good idea. They'll probably indicate, you know, that's not a good idea. You probably ought to cool off for a while. If not your spouse, a friend, not someone who's you know, angrier than you. All right? I.e., more foolish. Is this a matter of ego or principle? Am I really being driven by my ego here? Or is this a matter of principle? Because this is what's right? Or is it simply because I'm mad at the way things have have uh, worked out here the way somebody has responded, the way this situation has played out. Number six, am I teachable? Am I teachable? I mean, can you talk to me and help reason with me? Or is my mind's made up? I'm not listening. I don't need to hear it. I already know everything. I got it. Just shut up and I'm going to go do what I'm going to do. That's the definition of a fool. Or lastly, is this, am I open to grace? Am I open to grace? And I mean that sometimes am I open to the grace of God, but am I opening also to dispensing grace? Am I open to being like Jesus in this situation? Because Jesus probably wouldn't respond like I'm getting ready to respond. And the highest form of grace would be just what we saw Abigail do. You know what? That was wrong. And I want to take responsibility. I want to offer forgiveness, though you have not earned it or deserved it or even asked for it. And not in some surly manner. Or bend me, I'm going to forgive you. Not in that attitude. Maybe you just don't say anything. You want to have an opportunity to have the testimony, to be like Jesus? There's the great opportunity. We look for these big things we can do. Probably the biggest thing we can do is when we're insulted, when we're hurt, when we're angered, when we feel wronged, to dispense grace. We don't have to keep saying, God, what do you want me to do? He wants you to dispense grace. That's what he wants you to do. So until we learn that one, that's kind of like the kindergarten uh, Jesus 101 lesson. Until we learn what grace is and how to receive it and how to give it back and how to give it and extend it to others, uh, then we don't really need to be praying about what our big ministry is. Not to make you mad or hurt your feelings, but there's an area that we want to work on is grace. Recognizing that one who knew no sin 
gave himself for one who was like Nabal, who was foolish, who was, who were going down our own road, trying to make it for ourselves, trying to get more for ourselves, trying to put ourselves in the best light, in spite of how it appeared to God, in spite of what it did to the kingdom, in spite of the grace that God had offered to us. Let me just close with this story. I was uh, when I was an older teenager. Uh, you know, we had horses, and my dad raised horses, and we had uh, at my, my grandmother's house about two miles from us. We had this huge wooded acre, wooded acreage, and I used to love to go in there. And you know, I didn't have a lot to do in, in Louisiana at that point in my life. And I guess I was about 14 years old before I could get my driver's license, so I would just ride the horse out just as far in those swamps and woods as I could, and then see if I could find my way back. That's what I did for a great time uh, a lot of times. So it was one Saturday, and I had my cousin who was from California, John, who didn't know the woods at all. And and uh, it was that Saturday, uh, I guess it was a Friday, it was during the summer, because my dad was at work, and, and I said, come on, let's go ride. And my grandmother said, hey, y'all don't go far. Matter of fact, I don't want you to, to get out of this. We had about 10 acres in the front. I want you to get out of that pasture where I can't see you today. So I just want you to stay. It looks like there's a storm coming. So don't go out. So we start to leave, and and uh, John says, Grandma said don't go further. And eh, Grandma's fine. Don't worry about her. Uh, let's go on out here. It's not any fun to ride there. Let's go on out in the woods. Let's go to the swamps. So we start off, and we take off, and get out there. And we've, gone, we've been gone probably about an hour and a half. And he goes, uh, there's a storm coming. Shouldn't we go back? I said, no. I said, you know, there's a road here. Let's just run down. Let's just take the horse. We'll just run as fast as we can. Maybe we can outrun that storm, and I'm sure it'll come out somewhere else, and we'll be fine. So here we are running, you know. First of all, I've, I've been disobedient. I haven't listened to my grandmother. Secondly, instead of going back when the storm comes, I've decided I'm going to take some new road I haven't seen before. I say, it's a road, it's a trail, and I'm running the horses down the storm like I'm going to outrun this rainstorm. And so we're running deeper and deeper into the woods. And finally, I mean, we're just lost. He goes, he goes what do we do? I said, just, just keep going now. We've gone too far. It's been about three hours. It's, not gonna go. I don't know where. I don't know how to get back to where we were. And so finally, we see a highway. Hey, I'm forbidden to ever put a horse on the highway. Hey, my dad's not gonna know. Can't go back that way. It's all muddy. There's swamps back there. They're starting to rise. I'm gonna go on the highway. So I get on the highway, come back, and we finally make it back. And I said, John, here's the deal. My dad's gonna find out about this. And what you do is you just tell him, Hey, we were just out riding around, and we didn't realize what time it was. That's what you tell him. All right, stick to the story, son. We get there, and sure enough, my dad is just driving up. My grandmother's called him from work because we've been gone for four hours in the woods, and it's been raining and storming, and so he comes up. He gets us, and he goes, where you been? I said, well, we're just riding around out here, just having a good time. Just riding. I didn't realize what time it was. He gets John. He goes, John, do not lie to me. Where have you been? We were lost. John! California! <laughs> And so, you know, sure enough, John gets a spanking, and then I get like the spanking of my lifetime at that point. You know why? Because I was a fool. That's why. First of all, I didn't listen to the instruction of my authority. Number two, I was given wise counsel. Let's go back the way we came, the way that we know. I wouldn't take that. Number three, I wanted to cover it up. I wanted to deny. I just kept going. This went deeper and deeper and deeper. That's the definition of a fool. Hey, we're all going to make mistakes. The question is, when God begins to reveal to us, when He begins to speak to us, when His Word, when others begin to give us counsel and we don't listen, that's foolish. So today, in your circumstances, and the circumstance comes, will you choose to 
be cool like Abigail, or are you going to be foolish? Let's pray today. Take a moment. Father, thank you that you not only see us, but you understand and know us. And God, I ask this morning that you would forgive us of the times that we respond in emotion and in ego, where we fail to recognize that we are instruments of your grace, that you desire to use us as Abigails to soften and to welcome those into your kingdom. I pray, Father, that we would not be so self-consumed that we make foolish decisions. So, Lord, for those who are encountering stressful situations today, situations where they've been wronged, situations where they feel like things have not worked out even though they've been faithful, I would pray that you would encourage them to be wise, to be discerning, to be respectful, and to be trusting of you. To remember the promise that you've made, the calling that you've placed upon their life, and to not respond in ego and in self-serving in a self-serving manner. May we honor you and glorify you in all that we do. If there's one that doesn't know you today, I pray, Lord, that you draw them to the goodness of your kingdom.